and welcome to the Founders and Friends podcast. I'm your host, Healy Jones. Today, I am excited to be with Eric Verplu, who's a venture capitalist. He's really well known helping startups get to the Series A. Uh, his VC firm is uh, Tunitas. Uh, before we dive in and start asking Eric questions, let's have a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Healy Jones, VP of Financial Strategy here at Cruise Consulting. And I want to say thanks to our podcast sponsor, ARC. At Cruise, we've got a number of clients successfully using ARC to manage their deposits, payments, access financing, all in one place. One of the things that ARC provides that's really great is over a quarter of a million dollars in FDSC coverage. Their insurance program goes beyond the standard limit and it secures up to five and a quarter million dollars. So startups that have even more cash than that can go and access treasury solutions that provide yield and safety. If you're a startup looking for a secure financial solution that can help you scale, please check out our sponsor, ARC, at ARC.tech. And we're back. Hey, Eric, how are you? Excellent, thanks. Thanks for having me on the show, Healy. Yeah, delighted to have you. Uh, really delighted to have you. I think I met you about a year, a year and a half ago, uh, when Precursor Ventures was throwing an event. And your background just immediately leapt out at me. And you want, do, you want, do you want to talk a little bit about your background? Um, would let, let, Let's let the listeners know a little bit more about you. Sure, happy to do that. So, um I, uh, I've been here in the Valley since 88, got my PhD and MBA at Stanford, um, and then started a couple of venture-backed companies, raised five rounds of venture, Mayfield, Kleiner Perkins, Vantage Point, JMI, a bunch of good venture firms, um, and then spent 11 years as a partner in two large venture firms, uh, Vantage Point and DTCP, um, and then last year struck out on my own to start Tanitas Ventures. And the core differentiation of Tanitas is around helping our companies raise their subsequent Series A round. Um, you know, my experience from founding two venture-backed companies and then the 26 venture-backed boards that I sat on as a, as a partner in those firms, you know, most venture investors don't do a whole lot, which is fine from the entrepreneur's perspective. Uh, but the place where they can really add a lot of value, I felt and have always felt, is around helping around fundraising. And so I've built the practice of Tinnitus really around that core value proposition. So as the guy at Cruise Consulting, whose job it is to help our clients get ready for fundraising, I strongly agree that that is a place where experienced people can really help out. You know, you've done it many times. Founder generally only does it a handful of times in their lives. And additionally, you know, you're living in the market, right? The market conditions change and, uh, and you, you can kind of help explain uh, to founders sort of where the roadblocks are and, and where the capital is flowing and things like that. So I, 100%. Like really strong. I, I mean, yeah. uh, like you said, an entrepreneur whose experience only does it a few times in their life, whereas the venture investor, I mean, I'm in, actively involved with three of them this week. So, um, you know, you're in the flow of information. It's, it's one of the few areas where the venture investors network and information asymmetry advantage actually tips in their advantage. But it's really hard for, I think, a venture investor to become like a sector expert ahead of the, the entrepreneurial community. Um, but when it comes to fundraising assistance, that's sort of natural and baked in. For sure. In, in terms of the stage that you'd like to invest, if you're helping companies get ready for the A, are you generally investing at the seed or the seed extension or what, what rounds do you like to get involved? I like to say that I, I try to invest three to nine months ahead of Series A. Um, sometimes that's me, you know, precipitating a financing and saying, "Okay, well, I'll just give you a step up from the last thing you did that's fair and market value." 
Um, sometimes it's in the middle of they're doing something like an extension and then, and then, you know, it's a, a discussion, you know, there around like they're asking valuation and terms. Sometimes it's a seed round and, um, and they're on kind of a fast trajectory. And I see that it, that series A will happen in, in sort of that three to nine months range. I do pick that number of three to nine to make not that nine is sort of the outside to make it sort of concrete and real. This is not, oh, some nebulous day in the future we'll be raising uh, Series A, but more kind of like, no, we have a, a timeline and plan already in place. You know, things can slip, but at least if you say nine months, you're sort of thinking, okay, I have a plan. Okay, that makes sense. Much less than three months when people show up. It, you know, I, I want to be able to roll up my sleeves and help the company in the process. I can do a fire drill. Um, and a lot of the value add is around, you know, sort of in process and getting feedback from how pitches are landing. And so the three months, like that's nice to have. It can be shorter than that, but um, but that that allows for a, an orderly process to be run. So as an experienced VC investing before the Series A, what is the expertise and help that you can bring to help that founder get ready to have a successful Series A? The part that's obvious that everyone talks about um, is is sort of the packaging the story and getting the pitch together. Um, and I think this is one of the key value adds of, of many of the incubator accelerators is they just have the founder pitch a bunch of times and, and give sort of, you know, rapid cycles of feedback. You know, it used to be like six, eight years ago, you would see that as a, as a screaming need um, in essentially all companies. Now that's become, you know, some of the time, but not most of the time. Um, and so more, it's around sort of the strategy of which firms should we be pitching? You know, they'll have their, you know, often have their five company firms that they've been talking to and, and building relationship with. And then they'll have, you know, the five Nirvana, you know, brand name firms that everybody knows. And then my suggestion is always sort of like, well, that's great to start with that list of 10. Who at the next tier, who are you talking to? That is a firm that make, writes checks in your category, in your geography, in your stage. Um, you know what are the you know the attributes that you can point to, and who is the specific partner at those firms that you can get? A is the right one for your firm, and then B, who's going to be the person who introduces you to that person? And what I find most of the time is they just haven't thought about that part at all. Um, and they have the five relationships they're working, and those are fantastic. They have their five aspirational firms. They might not even know who the partner is at that firm, but those are great. And then the next 10 or 20 names on the list, depending on the kind of process they want to run, it's a scattershot. I mean, it's just crazy sometimes. Mm -hmm. And so I try to bring a um, quantitative methodology to figuring out the right firms and then the right partner at those firms. And then what is the right introduction path? Because we all get so many inbound deals that most of the time you can't really process them all as a venture investor. So it has to come from somebody you know and trust. And so what's the mechanism for getting that, that introduction path? I think that's the next phase that, that I can add a ton of value. And then the, the next phase after that is getting the feedback. You know, when I was an entrepreneur, embarrassingly long number of years ago, the venture people used to tell you what they thought about your business. And you know, a lot of times it was wrong because, come on, you know, they're not working at 80 hours a week like you are. But at least you learned how the how the, the message was landing. And then when, you know, information got sharing got better, 
um, you know, one entrepreneur in 50 would hear that feedback as, you know, throwing the baby out with the bathwater, you know, just would get mad, right? And right. would write mean things about the venture firm on the internets. And so kind of as an industry, uh, the venture folks became a lot less willing to share their feedback. I, and um, and so I can play that sort of plausible deniability role of like, I can call the, the partner and they can say, oh, yeah, we would never back that founder. That founder was like, blah, 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 blah. And then I can and then and then, you know, they're not going to tell me to email and right? nothing that could ever trace you know, <laughs> them. But but they can be relatively candid. And right. then I can sit down with the founder. And it's like, Here, here's how the message landed. Um, and in multiple cases, I then will say, if you want. I can sit in on your next pitch meeting as kind of a fly on the wall if, if the firm will allow it. It's a little weird, but not wildly weird. And then I can be there hearing how things are landing and, and be able to process the feedback for you even better. You know, I try my best to keep my mouth shut in those meetings um, and, then, and then really just act as a coach after the meeting is over. It is hard as a founder to uh, accept the feedback that your baby's ugly, right? That's really hard. Um, and when I was an investor, there were a few times, a number of times I tried to provide feedback, but eventually, you know, you get enough people who try to fight you on something where you feel that maybe you're, <laughs> you're not providing the right feedback. Uh, how as a founder, can you adjust your mindset to be really receptive to that no from the VC to incorporate the feedback to make your pitch and your story better? I think the first part is just to have realistic expectations about how deeply the venture investor will understand your business. You know, when you've been working at 80 hours a week for years on end, and you're having nuanced conversations with other people who are working 80 hours a week in your industry, for you, very small shades of gray from an outsider's perspective are hugely important. And you want to get the world to understand how important your approach is um, and those those things that are shades of gray. And for the venture investor who's spending a few hours a week in your sector for the last n months, they will never understand the shades of gray as well as you do. And you can either say they're idiots; they should they should drop everything and, and come as deep as I am in my world. And I only want to talk to the two or three venture firms and the you know partners in the world who've made that commitment. Or you can say, wait a minute, there, there's a higher level of abstraction here. Um, and let me embrace, rather than sort of as a chore, let me embrace as part of the craft of creating a great company, the ability to tell the story at a higher level of abstraction in a way that people get it. And they get what we're doing in a, a way that's compelling and interesting. So that's maybe the first bit around sort of mind shift change. And then the second bit that I see happen a ton is we, you know, we work so hard on making our presentation that we want to transmit it, right? And, and I'm totally guilty of doing this, right? You know, like I have a compelling story. I want to tell it. But it doesn't engage the audience anywhere near as much as if you can get the audience to start engaging and asking you questions. And so the nirvana is not 30 minutes of uninterrupted monologue. Right. The nirvana is a dialogue where the investor is engaging and asking questions. And, and that's, I think, can be difficult for entrepreneurs, and so, you know, for some entrepreneurs. I've I, I definitely been in pitches where you kind of get talked at by the, uh, by the founder for 30 minutes and does not resonate as well as the ones where you get asked a lot of questions. However, the flip side I would say is 
that sometimes the VC will ask a lot of questions and you will miss important points. And I, I specifically remember back to when I was a junior VC, um, we brought in a company that, that I think was pretty spectacular actually. And a bunch of questions were asked during the partner meeting and the founder never got to the competition slide. And one of the partners was like, well, he, he didn't say anything about competition. He must not be very experienced. And it was a little bit of like a, wait a minute, <laughs> like you just let him get to that slide, right? How, 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 as a founder, you know, I, I've got certain advice I'd like to give founders, but but uh, what, what kind of like advice do you want to give to a founder about sort of staying on target, staying on the pitch versus being nimble and, and going in the weeds with the VCs during the pitch? So I agree that can happen, but that's that's a minority of the, the cases that you're much more likely, I mean, when the... When there's a disconnect on the story landing, it's much more often that the, the founder was just talking at the investing group. Occasionally, you know, more than occasionally, you know, 20% of the time, the, the thing you're talking about can happen. And so the, the not perfect solution, but a solution is for the founder, when they're thinking about the story at the highest level of abstraction, there are a handful, maybe three key things to communicate. And so... If you're getting to the end of your allotted period of time and you know you've hit three of the four things that were on your key list, then no matter what the next question is, make sure you jam in number four. <laughs> I like that advice. That's excellent. What, uh, what do you think those three or four things are? Does that vary by company or the three or four things you need to get across? It really does vary by company. I don't think there's one you know, collection of three or four things. Sometimes it really is the competitive slide. Sometimes it really is the market size. Sometimes it really is the awesomeness of the founding team. Sometimes it really is the beauty of the business model. Um, there's not a, a one, one size fits all answer here. And this was something that, you know, eight years ago uh, was a huge screaming need. Um, I find now that's much less likely that, that entrepreneurs who have already raised at least one round of funding and maybe a second and have gone through series of pitches and the, the coaching has gotten a lot better. And, um, and so they're, they're much better at, at telling the story at that sort of high level of abstraction. So I definitely want to talk a little bit about the market, which has obviously been challenged and you write quite a bit about where you see market trends going on LinkedIn. Uh, but before we talk about the market, do you want to talk a little bit about what you need to look like as a business to raise a series a you know, right now in the fourth quarter of, uh, 2023? This is always a uh, important question in the ecosystem and the, the ready trite answers of you need to have $2 million of ARR and a growth rate of X. And I mean, there's value in that. And, and, and you know, the trite answer is, yeah, it's kind of $2 million of ARR. And, you know, if, if it's a straight up the middle enterprise SaaS business, you know, that number and really great growth of, you know, sort of 4X year over year coming into that $2 million number. But then there are lots of other business models where, you know, the visibility is, you know, um, further out in terms of, you know, hey, I've, I've gotten these wonderful, great risk reducing things done, you know, the revenue will come from them. Or in a lot of categories, you know, it's, it's, um, Revenue still years away, uh, and but you've proven some big risk factor has been addressed. Something where, you know, if you if you laid out the business plan on day one and you said, "What is the biggest risk factor between here and a successful, valuable business?" and you've knocked down that number one risk factor, well, then you've you've made really great progress. 
The problem is that a lot of times then an entrepreneur who's got, you know, things, things are going okay, but not great, will then say, oh, and we've knocked down this gigantic wristband. We have now have a proof of concept of our, our product working. And, you know, if you've built a Star Trek transporter and you can show proof of concept that you're moving a pen from here to the other side of the room, I'm in. I'm in. We can get you Series A, no problem. <laughs> but a lot of other things, you're kind of like, meh. You know, building the proof of concept of that um, doesn't really reduce the risk because it was software and we kind of all knew that you could get it done. And now here you've spent X dollars and now it's done. Okay, great. Yeah. So and it, it's really very, you know, company and, and market dependent. That makes sense. Yeah. And, and it, I would agree that every market has certain valuation or value creation milestones, right? And you got to tick enough of those down. To be able to get that get that next check, uh, one one of the things I advise our founders to do, particularly for industries that I don't know a lot about, is to network with analogous founders who are a little bit ahead. You know, not direct competitors, but folks who are in similar enough of an industry, and, and try to learn from them the things that they thought were important that unlocked their next funding. That's round. great advice, and I 100 percent agree. And the other thing I recommend for that is that um, those founders are also good introductions to their VCs. <laughs> So if it's again, if it's a non-competitive yet analogous founder, those are those are phenomenal ways to get into uh, your next round's investors. I heartily agree. Let's talk about the market. It's kind of the elephant in the room. It's not 2021 anymore. Things have corrected quite a bit. Public markets are down as well. Uh, you know, what do you think is the health of the early stage VC and seed market, and where do you think we're going? I, I start, you know, one step back um, at the macro, um, and and as a something of a, um, a Bayesian prior. Let me first say, people who are great at predicting the actual future macro mostly don't exist. Um, and if they did exist, they'd be billionaires trading their own account, not giving advice to you and me. So, so anytime somebody says something about things are going to happen in the future macro, you should basically assume that it's wrong. Uh, is is a good starting point. But I but I do think we can make observations about the reality that's on the ground today. And for me, I think the rea reality on the ground today is kind of a surprising one. We, we had a boom, right, and, and it peaked in 21. We had something of a crash, but, but it, wasn't, it wasn't despondency. Um, there was not this sort of point of capitulation in the market where people are like, give up, I give up, I'm selling my last share, I give up, right? I just don't think we ever got to the point of capitulation. And it's odd to have a proper recovery without a period of capitulation and then some, some number of quarters of, of real trough where people are just despondent and the mindset shifts from things will always be good to the mindset becomes, you know, mindset is like things are bad and they will always be bad. And we didn't have that yet. And so part of me is still kind of waiting for that point of capitulation and that period of despondency. Maybe this is the semi-mythical case where the Fed actually gets a soft landing and, you know, the U.S. Is, is, is an island of relative stability in a highly unstable world and, and capital flows are coming in because of that. And, and maybe we get to skip the, the point of capitulation in the period of despondency. It's not typical that that happens, but it's kind of looking like maybe that is happening. And so if that has happened, 
then then I think we're starting to see a little bit of a, of a rise in the data. I don't, not I think. I see it in September and October and the first couple of weeks of, of November in terms of, you know, enthusiasm in the venture markets. You know, it's not going to be 21 again, but yeah. but uh, but maybe we get to skip the period of awfulness and we get to just have a 22, 23 were kind of periods of meh, yeah, okay. Personally, I feel like I felt despondent a few times uh, <laughs> in the past 12 months, but I guess the, the flip side is, you know, earning five point something percent on your cash makes you a little less, a uh, little less despondent. So maybe that's- Well, the, we didn't have that period where like, you me, know, I, every day in your newsfeed, every single article or, you know, the overwhelming majority have a sentiment of things are terrible and they will always be terrible. Um, and that's what we had in the Great Recession and what we had in the dot-com crash is like everyone just – that was the the complete mindset of everyone in the ecosystem is things are terrible and they will always be terrible. That's true. That's true. I mean, I, I, you know, we have 800-plus clients and we definitely had a period of time, particularly into kind of the end of Q2, where an unusually large number of companies shut down and some of which I think were – pretty smart founders attacking interesting ideas and they were caught up in the capital market problem a little bit. That was, that was pretty depressing. Um, of course, there are also a lot of other companies where they never really found that product market fit or go to market, you know, motion. And so you can understand why those ones weren't raking it, but some other ones, uh, yeah, it's just, it, you know, it was a little, little depressing there for a while. And I wouldn't be surprised if we see another sort of run up of companies sort of shutting down end of year, it can be a natural time to kind of throw in yeah. the towel and, and go and try to find something yeah. else to do. Um, let, let, let's say you're talking to a, a founder whose company is is going to shut down. Um, what advice would you would would you give to them? Uh, in particular, you know, worked with founders who have shut down and been able to go raise again successfully for another better idea. You know, so so what kind of advice would you say to the founder that's shutting their business down um, that would help them be ready to rebound, be ready to come back and start a new business and, and successfully raise capital yeah. again? I mean, I think there are two phases um, and the advice is different in the phases. The first one, when, when you're sort of thinking about maybe things aren't working here is uh, to really seriously think about, you know, saving the company. And even if it takes you an extra six months to you know get it to an exit and, you know, maybe you're not making millions of dollars, that getting to a successful exit is, um, you know, even if it's really modestly successful, is better than just giving up. Better for your psyche, better for your reputation in the ecosystem, better for all those things. Now, what I don't recommend is taking that logic too far and saying, well, we could become a consulting company and my venture investors will own 30% of this consulting company that you know we can kind of keep alive through a bunch of uh, NRE projects. And that you're not doing anybody a favor there, right? You're hurting yourself and you're not helping your, your investors. But if you can see it to an orderly exit that, you know, um, gets some kind of you know uh, money, hopefully for you, then that's that's better. So then further along, if you've gotten to the point of like, this just is not working, then don't try to, to make it something it isn't, right? You know, you take your learnings, you have the candid conversations with your existing investors, and you work quickly and efficiently to an orderly shutdown. And, you know, maybe you take a little vacation and sort of, you know, regroup and, and recharge a bit. People say the best learnings come from failures. Like, eh, I'm not 100% sure with that, on that. I think the best learnings come from successes. 
but you do learn something from a failure. You should absorb those learnings and use them to inform your next thing. And if you were a founder who sort of jumped on to whatever the popular thing was that year when you founded it, I think those are, those are harder. You know, if you're a founder who was driven by a need to see something change in the ecosystem, right, there's something problem or broken, then maybe you just take a different attack on the same fundamental broken thing in the market with a completely different approach. And, and then, you know, be super transparent and, and forthcoming with your existing investors with the goal of, I want to, you know, treat them as fairly as possible um, so that they would want to back my next venture. We've definitely seen a number of founders finding ways to get their investors some or all their cash back. And you know, that's not why a VC makes an investment, but it does feel nice to get some of your capital back. And I've seen the, the VCs appear to be very appreciative of that. And I see, I see them backing the same founders again later if they feel like the founder did everything they could to be good stewards of that capital. And you know, also be realistic in terms of reading the tea leaves. So, uh, but it, 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 this is, this is a hard conversations that we have with, yeah. with some of our clients. And I'm sure you occasionally have to have them with some of the companies you've invested in. It's, um, it's, it's a little bit of an effect of the down market, but on the other hand, I think the number one piece of advice there is to be candid and transparent with the investors and, and communicate. Right. What you, you know, as an investor don't want is, Oh, Hey, um, good news. You can put in, um, some money now. I'm going to be out of cash in two weeks. Like what? <laughs> that would not happen to be since, I, you know, with my business model, I'm much closer to my companies. And so uh, there's no way that that would happen. But for a lot of investors who are running large portfolio models, you know, they're not as close to their mm. companies. And, and that can be a little bit of a shock. Hey, hey, I'm giving up. Like what? Um, so, you know, don't don't do that to your investors, you know, and no one likes to share bad news. It's not fun, but you get a lot of credibility points for being transparent. I totally agree with you. Um, and also being empathetic, thinking about thinking about the investor, thinking about your employees, thinking about your customers. Um, but this this did lead me to another yeah. thing that I've um, definitely seen a lot of founders ask me about. and would love to get your thoughts on this. Some very large funds have gotten pretty active at the very early stage, the pre-seed or seed. And I'm hearing sort of mixed signals in terms of the attention that the founders get. But what they do appear to be getting are pretty high valuations. And it's like, it's just interesting to see the um, kind of check sizes as well. What has your experience been uh, with the very large funds who traditionally may be sitting at Series A or Series B doing those very early stage investments? Is that the right call for a founder to take that money? And you know, how does the founder get the most out of that type of a relationship? There's no, I don't think a one size fits all answer. Um, you know, there are pluses and minuses uh, associated with those checks from from the large firms. But you want to be careful. You know, you're not getting the same level of attention as you're getting. You know, when one of their tenured partners takes a board seat, right? So yes, you know, brand name firm X Y Z is investing. That's nice. But don't confuse that with the same situation as brand name firm XYZ and one of their tenured partners is taking a board seat, right? Those are totally different kinds of levels of commitment from the firm. Okay. Um, and, and the trade-offs, you know, like, so first and foremost, right, you need capital. And so if this is a, a efficient way to get it, um, that can be great. Then the second bit is, you know, around the, the risk of signaling and, and um 
that's a data analysis that I, I should, you know, try to figure out how to do. The, so the, the pluses and minus, right? Like one minus is, hey, if big brand name firm XYZ is invested at the seed and they don't invest at the series A, what does that mean to the world outside? You know, it, it has some negative repercussions. Big name firm XYZ did hundred of these seed investments per quarter, well, like, man, maybe they aren't watching them all that closely. Like, maybe there's less signaling effect okay. there than, than, uh, than we might have been concerned about five years ago. Makes sense. That totally makes sense. Another question that I hear from founders quite a bit, and I've got my answer, but I'd love to hear your answer, is how do you value a Series A company? Uh, this is a, always a, a, uh, a perennial and... Um, and difficult question because it has so many layers of complexity on it. And at some layers, it's just trivial. And at other layers, it's incredibly nuanced. The simple answer is there's a market rate for price. This is something different than value. Uh, there's a market rate. And you know, if you ask five venture investors, take the name off the company and just give the relevant details, they'd all kind of come up with close to the same number as here's the market rate for a company in that kind of position with how much revenue and growth and what level of credibility of the team and what sector and defensibility of the business model and you know size of the market opportunity. You'd be shocked how close the numbers were for all of them because they're all in the market and they're all seeing what the prevailing prices are on, on deals that are getting done. So that's the trivial answer is price is supply and demand um, we all are in the market all the time, and we have a pretty good sense of what the supply, demand, market clearing price for a company with attributes XYZ is going to be. So that's the, the trivial answer. The much harder question is what's the company worth, hmm. right? What's its fundamental value? And, and the job of the venture investor is to find the cases where the fundamental value is way higher than the market clearing price. I mean, in some ways, that seems you know moronic to even say out loud, but but that is the job at the end of the day, or one you know one way to think about the job maybe is a better way to say it. And then that's a very hard question: what is what is the company worth in a, a, a market where I don't know point one point two percent of the outcomes uh, at the seed stage are going to generate half the profit in any given year? Mm-hmm. Um, it's very very difficult to assess um, uh, value in that case. Yeah, for sure. So a more practical answer for entrepreneurs is talk to your friends and venture investors who are in the flow of Series A and say, what's the market clearing price for a company with my attributes? Right. And you, I think, be kind of surprised at how close they, they come. That makes sense. I, I believe that. That makes a lot of sense. And, and from my perspective, there's always, if you can get enough VCs interested, you don't need that many, but you can get enough interest, you can pretty quickly back into the normal market clearing price um, and then... You know, you could avoid the one that's trying to act fast, maybe undercut you a little bit. <laughs> but, but I think I think more important than there are things that are way more important than price, though. Right. So um, especially if the amount of money you're raising is small compared to the valuation, then then it's a mistake to get overly focused on valuation and that the the value add of the investor and the signaling that uh, a good investor will uh, uh, create is is super important. And. Um, especially at the point where you have a partner who's coming and sitting on the board for perpetuity or till you know eight plus years until liquidity, that matters a ton. Right. When you're at the seed stage, you know, and um, you know that 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 consideration is is less critical. I agree. I t- I definitely agree. 
I, I guess the, the flip side question would be, uh, there are definitely companies that last round was in 2021 at a very high valuation and the clock is ticking here. They may not have a lot of runway. What advice do you give to the companies that are overvalued in terms of how they approach their next fund round? My advice to on whether I'm sitting on the venture side or giving advice to an entrepreneur is always the same. Take the lower valuation. You'll work through the mechanics and it, you'll see, unless you did something punitive in the previous round, you'll see that it doesn't matter all that much. It matters for your ego. It can matter for employees a little bit, but it doesn't matter anywhere near as much as you think it does from an actual ownership perspective. And the, but a lot of times the entrepreneur is stubborn or is overly concerned about appearances and wants to maintain that last round valuation. And so then they agree to structure. And you know, you're like, I've written those term sheets. Uh, I've done that in the past when I was at big firms. Um, you can do that. And you know, the venture investor is like, you tell me what the valuation is, I'll write the term sheet. They end up painting the company into a corner. And especially at anything other than we're about to go public kind of stage, you don't want inhibitors on your degrees of freedom to operate. And so my advice always is do the financing at a lower valuation. Don't get cute. Don't try to add some special you know, preferences or some special terms or some something or other else or some guaranteed whatever. Um, all of those things will come back and bite you later and they will inhibit your degrees of freedom to operate. So I, no matter what side, I always say just do it at a lower valuation now. Yeah, take, take the down run. Yeah, it was a little bit, little bit of a leading question. We published our guide to down rounds early, early this year, and it's been, uh, it's been a pretty good piece of content. But it's also been very helpful to, to share with their founders who, you know, rightfully have some heartburn uh, when they realize they're going to have to raise a down round. Like that's not, it's not a good feeling, right? It, 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 no. and for a number of reasons, it's not a good feeling. But unfortunately, you, you do kind of need to take the medicine. The, the place where I start to feel pretty bad is for like, say, a founder who's left or employee who's left, they tend to get washed washed out or diluted quite a bit in a down round and that's doesn't really necessarily seem fair but that is that that happens that's just that's just how the process works unfortunately uh, especially in cases where the company is a little profligate with their spending and um and so you know the promise is there and they raise around and you know then then there's another flat round because you know the promise is still there but you know it's not been uh, not as much progress and there's just sort of natural increase in in you know the option pool each time and natural increase in the stack of liquidation preferences in front of the common and then all of a sudden you're like oh my gosh the 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 liquidation preference stack is i think maybe bigger than the company's fundamentally worth and then then the structure uh, creativity comes out and then like it's just bad. It's bad for the common. It's bad. It's bad everywhere. Yeah. And it, and it makes it hard to have an exit that might've been okay. Right. When they're, yeah. when the liquidation preference stack is, is worth more than what the business is. You're in a, you're in a tough spot there. But the flip side, you know, is there was a Paul Graham not so long ago. He, he's written a lot of fantastic posts and, you know, like some of the best thinking on early stage um, startups, but he, he wrote a post about um, default alive um, and, you know, getting to profitability. And, and it, you know, there are some entrepreneurs who've taken that advice too much to heart. And you, you end up with a company like, okay, yeah, you were at 
a million of rev, two million of revenue and breaking even and, uh, and, and growing 20% a year. And you just think that's not a happy place, right? No. You, it's going to be super hard to raise equity money from the outside at that growth rate. And so now you've kind of constrained yourself to being your team of six people adding point, you know, 1.2 heads a year because that's the, how fast you're growing the revenue. And it's a very slow way to build a company. And, you know, if you took venture money and if you're building a consulting business, like you should do that. Right. And that's a great growth rate for consulting business. But you shouldn't take venture money for that business. Right. So if you took venture money, you were trying to build an equity rocket ship. And then to shift into a mindset of, hey, we're trying to grow 20 percent a year so that we can always maintain control of our own destiny and never need outside money. I think categorically is 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 tough advice to, yeah, to you, agree you, with. You should and, not raise venture funding if that's your goal, right? Like that's and I hate to disagree with Paul Graham because he he's written so much great stuff over the years. But that's one place where I would I would nitpick with him. Again, for for bootstrap business, you can do whatever the hell you want. That's actually you know that's that's great. But as soon as you start taking the equity checks from professional investors, they have a particular view and they're going to really force you or push you in that direction, right? I've definitely seen companies where the VCs kind of push for growth beyond what the company can sort of profitably deliver. But that's that's the that's the venture. That is the, that's what that you're is the flip for. side that happens all all too often. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, the, the growth at all costs. Um, I'm a big believer in understanding the unit economic model of the business. And, you know, if there's a unit economic model where every incremental dollar in produces you know, 10%, 10 cents per month of gross margin lift, like I'll, I'll do that, you know, uh, annuity all day long, you know, burn more of my money, make, make it less right. profitable, please. <laughs> um, but the, the, the too often the case is every incremental dollar is producing a penny a month in, in increased gross profit. And, and you go, I think maybe I'd just be better in treasuries than, than yep. buying that equity. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, and we, we definitely see some of the later stage businesses are a little bit caught up in that, right? They've sort of exhausted the easy growth and the next incremental dollar of growth starts to get really expensive. Um, and so I'm kind of curious to see what's going to happen with some of these later stage companies as they're, as they're burning through their capital. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll see. Uh, <laughs> Hopefully some of them well, end up in a good spot. That, but, the, uh, the free advice there is that one episode of Star Trek where Spock hits the afterburners and it makes a big flare and it saves the day. That doesn't work. Uh, <laughs> don't, don't hit the afterburners and try to save the day. Uh, you want to be realistic and, and test out your ideas, not you know go all in on one. All in on one thing. That's that's probably good advice. That's probably great advice. Well, let, let, let's shift to some of a kind of slightly happier thing. It does seem like the Series A market is opening up a little bit here. Uh, what, what do you think are the factors that are that are driving that? We definitely, you know, last quarter, hopefully it wasn't just a dead cat bounce. Hopefully it was a real thing. We saw more deals happening at the Series A level in the U.S. You know, what is behind that? I think there's a macro and, you know, and a, and a, and a techno, um, you know, tech push. Um, so the macro is the stuff we talked about earlier, you know, and that um, maybe we have avoided a, a capitulation and, and despondency era um, in the markets and, and we get this mythical soft landing. Um, okay. And that seems like maybe it's so. happened. Hope so. Yeah. Hope so. Um, the second part is, you know, the, the AI revolution is real. 
and um, I have mixed feelings here, but but for sure, the use of AI in a lot of you know, uh, startup use cases um, really makes them better. And, and I see that even in my own portfolio companies that weren't explicitly AI, um, they're using AI to, you know, uh, to make their, their product and their internal processes better. Um, and so sadly, there are a lot of folks who then, you know, take the mistaken approach of, oh, AI is hot. Let me start an AI company. I'm going to use AI. And then they start looking around for a problem to solve, um, which is a, is a less compelling North Star for a young company than oh my gosh, there's this problem that must be solved. I'm going to solve it using, I'm going to do this, I'm going to use these, some humans here, and I'm going to do this thing, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to use some AI here. I'm to, and so they're, they're cobbling together the combinatorial goodness of all the technology that's out there, including AI, um, mm-hmm. to go solve you know, customer problems or address a, a latent market need that no one else has addressed. Th- those are super compelling to me. The kind where it's, hey, I'm an AI company, and we're going to go, oh, we're going to apply AI to go solve that thing. You know, it's running eight years until liquidity from seed stage. Like, is, is there really going to be market hype and froth on AI in eight years? Mm-hmm. That just doesn't seem that likely to me. Yeah. Well, we, we have seen our clients adopting AI pretty aggressively. I noticed that over half our clients are paying open AI now, which if you think about it, open AI wasn't really something that you could easily purchase last year. So it's, that's pretty yeah. aggressive penetration. Um, and they're, you know, talking to the clients they are using it in a variety of things. Some of them are using it to, uh, just, you know, write simple marketing things or get a little help coding. And on the, on the other side, some are actually powering a feature using it. Right. So there's, there's mm-hmm. a kind of a, a big swath of, Hey, I'm using the API to do something amazing, or it's just making my marketing guy more effect- effective. Like that's, it's pretty interesting that such a broad, kind of use case across the client base. Because in general, when you see our clients adopting something, it's, oh, I'm using that for international payments. It's like a very kind of narrow rail that they're using it for. Yeah. This is more of like a, a toolbox. As Much more horizontal. Tool. Yeah, yeah. It's, really, it's, yeah, it's, it's like, it's, I, I talk about a little bit like the internet, right? It, you know, it, it'd be kind of crazy. Oh, I'm starting a business, but there's no internet involved in my business at all. Yeah, exactly. well, you can't I mean, email me, that. sorry. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, I'm starting a business? One of my, hey, Healy, Healy, don't tell anybody this, but we're going to use electricity inside of our, our offices. No kerosene lamps anywhere. And you're kind of like, oh, amazing. okay, good. <laughs> That's amazing. Well, Eric, this, is, this has been a pretty, uh, pretty awesome discussion. I feel like we've gone a lot, of different, a lot of different ways. I'd love to end with kind of one piece of advice that might be really useful to our, our clients uh, and to our listeners. Uh, and I want to ask about the wow factor. Like in your view, what is the wow factor that makes a startup irresistible to Series A investors? Um, it's not a superficial. I, 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 in fact, I even kind of cringe at the notion of like there's a wow thing. Um, you know, great companies are founded to go solve big problems, right, or address giant latent needs in the market. They tend not to be ones that are just doing the same thing that somebody else is doing, and. Whether you call that greenfield or category creator or whatever, um, to me, that is a much more compelling North Star for a company than, hey, we're in this hot category, um, which you know, maybe is driving pricing a little bit higher today, but it isn't going to carry the day to liquidity. Mm-hmm. So that's the first thing. And then the second thing that I you know, would think about, you know, and so that's sort of the, you know, the the admonishment to not go do, um, you know, what everybody else is doing. 
The second admonishment is, you know, is, you know, standard Paul Graham of like build something people want. Um, and, you know, and this is sort of Clay Christensen, you know, 101 of, hey, you know, be impatient for a business model that works. Don't go try to boil the ocean. Um, begin to show that the business model is working or knock down the biggest risk factors between you and that working business model. And then the last thing that, that I think really gets, you know, the, the very best Series A venture firms excited, you know, and partners at those firms is a defensible business model. Um, you know, we've all had the experience of a company gets, you know, we made the investment and then the company gets to 20 or 30 million of revenue and it's growing nicely. And then all the copycat competitors come out of the woodwork and copy the bullet points off of our portfolio company's website and put it on their website. And, and we know it's BS, but it does slow down the sales cycle and it does increase your churn rate and it does create pricing problems. And so, you know, I've become a, a very big believer in, in businesses where there's inherent defensibility in, in the model. Makes a lot of sense. That makes a ton of sense. Well, Eric, thank you for joining me. This was a great discussion. Um, and I'm, I'm sure people are going to like it. it look, looks like you have one more thing you want to add. What is it? Go for it. Oh, uh, I was going <laughs> to say, I'm sorry I didn't, you know, the, the dopamine hit, you know, answer, like, here's the wow factor. And then it makes this great little post on, on LinkedIn um, that people can go, oh, my gosh, that's great. Um, but in reality, you know, building a great company is a few fundamental key things and not one wow factor dopamine hit. I don't know. I think you actually did answer the question, right? So you said, oh, good. build something people want. That actually is good advice. And build a defensible business model. Now, it's not like those are just, oh, I'm going to push a button and that's going to happen. But yes, that is it's what awesome. you need to do to build a successful business, right? Like that is act the actual advice of what you need to do to create a VC-backed successful startup. You got to build yeah. something you people want and your business model has got to be defensible. Like that's, exactly. That's, that's a good that's summary. Uh, and the only ad addition out there is like, just don't do what everybody else is doing too. Right. I mean, you can build like everyone, everyone knows that, you know, uh, open AI is, has built something people want. Okay. The legitimate competitors, there's already a handful of them. Go building another one of them is not a good idea. That, that's going to be hard. That's going to take a lot of capital. But, uh, but, yeah, but good luck. Very, if you can, yeah, and very expensive as well. So Eric, Eric how, can, how can people find you? I'm at eric at tinnitus.vc is my email address. Sadly, you know, in the old days, I used to be able to reply to every email. Now they've, you know, there are some of these lists out there that wow. I get a bunch of inbound unsolicited uh, great ideas with, you know, emojis in the subject line and, you know, so many exclamation points. It looks like a real estate um, flyer. So, you know, if you have an idea that you really like, you know, want me to be involved, like I, I try to keep my LinkedIn list to be people I actually know, not just random people I've met once. Uh, and it's a lot. It's a lot. Right. It's hundred, many, many hundreds. Um, any of those people who know me is a great way to refer in. Or if you don't know any of those people, then write a custom email that didn't come from HubSpot um, that looks like, you know, it was sent to a thousand other prospective investors, right? And, and, you know, if you went to one of the schools I went to, you know, if you actually, you know, know something, then, then, you know, show that you actually, you know, know the person that you're reaching out to. And this is not me being an egomaniac. 
maybe it is, but it's more about like, this is how you show to a prospective investor that like you value what they do. And that's advice I give to my, my portfolio companies is if you can't tell with a straight face, the partner that you're pitching, why their money is more valuable than just the check, then should they really be on your target list? It's good advice. It's really good advice. And all I was, all I was asking for was an email address. That was amazing. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> that was great. It was really good. Thank you so much. Appreciate it really, having you on. Thank you for having me on. I all right. Take it. care. <laughs>